0: This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com/leaders. That's p a y c o r.com/leaders.
1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12 month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary, discounts not available in all states and situations.
0: 4.18 to go on the fourth. Three receivers set, two to the left. Fields takes the snap, looks, he throws, and it's caught by D.J. Moore down the sideline. There's nobody there streaking to the end zone for the touchdown. 56 yards. D.J. Moore has made sweet music all night.
1: Touchdown number three could have been touchdown number four. We may touch on that coming up later in this segment. It's a Friday edition of Pro Football Talk Live, Peacock, Sirius XM 85, Sky Sports NFL, and wherever you get your podcasts, however you get your podcast. If you do get your podcast today, you will hear me along with, after a brief break, he went out to Colorado to hang out with Deion Sanders. Huh? Hanging out with Deion Sanders. Look Not at me, really. i Peter King. Here he is. There he is. He got to be around well, the aura, the magic, the mystique that is Colorado.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, I wasn't invited into mystique, uh, but I saw it. It was fun. It was actually fascinating, and I wonder if that's where college football is headed. But I know where we're headed last night, and that is that, you know, can can Justin Fields now engender – After the last five days, can Justin Fields engender some thoughts of never mind among all of the Bears fandom? (laughs) You you know, after, you know, in the span of two days, being a 68% passer with eight touchdowns, one interception, not just relying on his legs. This is the product of Justin Fields, I think. Two things, being with Luke Getze a second year and basically feeling a lot more comfortable in the offense right now, not just feeling a lot more comfortable in the running game. And also, I wish I could read all of these things that I've read over the last few weeks on the air about Justin Fields throwing to a guy who's not a real number one receiver, to me, I think DJ Moore looks like a real number one receiver to me.
1: Victoria. Oh, he definitely looked like a real one last night. Eight catches, 230 yards, three touchdowns. You saw that clip there of what looked like another touchdown that somehow, someway was called out of bounds. We've seen that happen before. A couple of weeks back, Amari Cooper was called out of bounds when he clearly was not against the Tennessee Titans. But, Peter, could that... Could, could the explanation be this simple? Now, let me put it in context first. The Bears had lost 14 in a row. Longest streak actively in the NFL. Longest streak in franchise history. 347 days since the Bears last won a game. Could it be, given what's happened the last five days, and ignoring for now the fact that they blew a 28-7 lead and loss to the Broncos, but what Justin Fields did week four, week five, Phenomenal, especially in comparison to the first three weeks. Is this as simple as something along the lines of what Kyle Shanahan, the 49ers coach, explained earlier in the week? It takes time to get your offense up to speed. Limited offseason workouts in comparison to what they used to be. Limited physicality of training camp practices. Limited opportunities to get those five blockers to work in unison to help unleash an offense is it as simple as it just took a few weeks for whatever Luke Getzey is trying to get Justin Fields to become, to begin to flourish. Is it that simple based on the last two games? Maybe that's the explanation. It just took a little while for all of this to click because it now takes a little while for offenses to get clicking in the NFL.
2: Well, I think that's probably part of it, Mike, but I think it's also, I think one of the biggest factors is that over the last five days, the Chicago Bears have faced the 31st and 32nd scoring defenses in football. The Denver Broncos are the worst, and stunningly, the Washington Commanders are the second worst. Now, Mike, you would have never thought before the year. That the Commanders might have the worst uh, the worst defense in the NFC, and I'm not saying that it's over and that's what they're going to be, but this has been a really really disappointing defense right now. You know, the last four weeks, the last four weeks, the Washington Commanders have allowed 36 points per game. You know, everybody talks about Ron Rivera might be on the hot seat and all that. I mean, Jack Del Rio's seat ought to be in blazes right now. The defensive coordinator of Washington, uh, you know, this is, it's intolerable. You know, the last four games, they're giving up, Mike, essentially 145 yards a game, rushing, rushing. And with that stout front, it's simply unacceptable. So to me, when I look at this, I agree with you. It does take time. But they're also facing two lousy defenses. And, you know, incredibly, you know, because we thought Denver, that was going to carry them while, they, uh, while the offense got used to Sean Payton. But, you know, Vance Joseph and Jack Del Rio, their units have both been awful, And I think the Bears, that's part uh, of why the Bears have been so prolific the last two games.
1: Well, and when you consider that the commanders essentially have two defensive experts... At high levels of the coaching staff, you've got Ron Rivera, yeah. who was a successful defensive coordinator before he became a head coach, and he's a two-time coach of the year. And then you throw in Jack Del Rio, and those two minds coming together can't get better performance out of a defense that seems to have the parts, and they can't make it work. That Wrong does question. not bode well for the future of Ron Rivera. When you've got Eric Bieniemy, who is getting a lot of buzz, a lot of praise, a lot of notice, and you've got a new ownership group that hired none of these people that is thinking about the future, the very easy thing to do is hand the whistle to Eric Bieniemy and move forward after the season, if that's what Josh Harris, Magic Johnson, and company are inclined to do. And that's the direction it's pointing right now. Still a long way to go, Peter, but they're 2-3. and three. They've lost three in a row. They've got 12 games left. They've got two against the Cowboys, another against the Eagles, 49ers, Seahawks, Dolphins. It's going to be hard for this team to finish on the right side of 500. And if they don't, how do you not expect major changes to be made by somebody who did not buy the team for the privilege of employing Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio? Josh Harris bought the team because he wanted a team and he's going to employ whoever he wants to employ when the time comes to make big decisions. And if the team is not on the right side of 500, those decisions are not going to be made in a way that Ron Rivera will, will agree with, although he gets it because he's lived through it. He's lived through it with David Tepper. You see what happens. Yeah. New owner comes in, new owner has his or her own agenda. That's the way it works in pro sports.
2: I think a couple of things right there, Mike. Number one, uh, I think the timing of this sale and the delay of this sale, honestly, might have saved Ron Rivera's job for another year. Because I think that uh you know, coming into this year, had this sale been complete last November or December, which Obviously, it's hard to do because of the way the NFL calendar falls. But with that ridiculously long investigation by Mary Jo White and, and then the results of it, because that obviously helped push Daniel Snyder out, all the findings of that investigation and the congressional inquiry into the franchise, all that. But had this been accelerated a little bit, Ron Rivera might not be coaching this team right now. Who knows who might be? Sean Payton pick pick a name. I don't know. But I think the other point to make is that all this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. I noticed that in the last two games, you know, one of the biggest, one of the guys who's really helped victimize this defense, honestly, is Emmanuel Forbes. And when Washington picked him midway through the first round. Uh, last April everybody said oh my god this guy weighs like 168 pounds he's thin as a rail can he survive an NFL season well the physical part of it is not necessarily what it, it, you know his 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 stature is not the problem right now he's just getting killed out there and he got killed again by uh, DJ Moore last night just like he got beat badly on Sunday and and you know so to me I understand let's let's get on Ron Rivera and all that but I think uh, you know the personnel side of this doesn't look great either but I'll say one other thing this quarterback Sam Howell is one impressive dude you look at him the last two weeks how much he's gotten hit and some of the throws he's delivered. I think one thing that Washington, at least it seems, doesn't have to really worry about. Remember a year ago when we were all saying, boy, good thing Detroit has those two high picks. You know, Next year in the draft, they can go get a quarterback because Jared Goff isn't the guy. By the end of the year, Jared Goff had made believers out of everyone. They said, hey, he, he is the guy. But now I think we're kind of saying the same thing about Washington the beginning of the year, I don't think anybody thought Sam Howell was the guy. He is really starting to look like the genuine item right now in a bad situation in Washington.
1: And that's the worst news for Ron Rivera. If it looks like Sam Howell's getting it done under the tutelage of Eric Biennium, it becomes a much easier decision to say, we're going to make Biennium the head coach of the team. This guy's been overdue for years. He came in here in one year, and even with a really bad defense, he made the offense go. You're pointing on Emmanuel Forbes. At some, at some juncture, it's incumbent on the coaching staff to get the guy off the field if he just can't play. If he is the yeah. glaring weak link well, that the chain, night. They you got to get him off the night. field. Well, Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to get him off they the field. They might have too waited long too to long, then. but they did get
2: him off the field.
1: One yeah. benefit that the commander's defense got last night came from the sideline or the perception that the sideline had been crossed when it had not. We showed you the play earlier of DJ Moore making the catch and running toward the end zone before pulling up because he realized he'd been called out of bounds, Amari Cooper versus the Titans style. Let's hear from Moore after the game on the decision to rule him out of bounds when we saw nothing to suggest on the broadcast that he'd actually stepped out of bounds.
2: No, nah, so that that, that, that that really pissed me off because uh,
1: I was about to score. I could have had four touchdowns, you know, and um, I mean, the ref got to do his job, but at the same time, it, it is what it is. We got the win, so I'm not too mad on it. <laughs> now, look, I got to give CBS credit. The game. The game where Amari Cooper stepped out of bounds, we had a clear shot of it live, and they showed it over and over again. And I don't want to be critical of our friends at Amazon, but they never gave us a clear look at that sideline. There are so many cameras in the building at a primetime game. You owe it to the audience to show them where he did or didn't step out. And yet again, Peter, this is what drives me crazy about the NFL's officiating function that dates back to 1921. We're going to rely on the naked eye of a middle-aged man or woman who's out there trying to survive among the gladiators. Where does he step out of bounds? And you have someone looking right at it. Look at the person in black and white stripes. There he is, right there. And what did he see? Just like the official in the Titans-Browns game. And this is your job. That's your moment. That's what you're trained and paid to do, to spot whether or not someone stepped out of bounds. Maybe he did. We haven't gotten a clear look at it. I wish we could get a great camera angle, and I would like to think there is one. I thought they were giving it to us when they gave us this shot, but we never really get a chance to see where, where, what. I need to see that he stepped out of bounds because I don't think he did. Social media doesn't think he did, not that social media is the ultimate arbiter of anything, but I have yet to see anything that makes me think this isn't another Amari Cooper phantom out-of-bounds play, Peter. Mike, in the last
2: couple of years, the NFL has gone to great pains to have the New York, the Art McNally Officiating Command Center uh, on Park Avenue in New York City Every game, I've been in it, you've been in it, we've seen how this thing works. And on Sunday, it's really quite something, because on Sunday, there could be eight or nine workstations where there is a person who is in charge of looking at everything and then calling over either Walt Anderson or, you know, last year, rest in peace, Wayne Mackey, a couple of years ago. Uh, but but be that as it may, there's one game on television last night, one game being played in the entire National Football League. And the only reason I mention the officiating command center is that this allows multiple sets of eyes to be on one game. One game. And then all that has to happen is that someone, probably Walt Anderson from that officiating command center, can get into the ear of the referee on site in uh, Landover, Maryland, and and basically they say, hold on, hold on, have a crew conference. Ask him what he saw. It really looks like he did not step out of bounds. And, and I guess the one thing I would say about that play, Mike, you know, after that play, not that it's the biggest deal in the world, the Bears won by 20. But honestly, I I would have, I would have probably, if I were the Bears, I would have called a timeout. And I would have essentially put the pressure on the officiating crew to make sure they saw every angle of that play. Because the officiating command center should have been in the ear of the referee and said, basically, you guys need to have a crew conference and ask whether they're
1: positive he stepped out of bounds. Well, and Peter, here's the problem, I believe, and I'm appreciative of the fact that we have this expanded opportunity to talk these things through. I think this is one of those situations where once the official says he's out of bounds and kills the play, it doesn't matter. There's nothing they can do right. in the command center. The play is over. The whistle's blown. And look, I have learned over the years – to attribute to incompetence before attributing to malfeasance. But but when they can't do anything about it, when it's another Amari Cooper situation, it kind of helps the broader cause if the rest of us never see a clear shot of DJ Moore stepping out of bounds or not stepping out of bounds. That's what bugs me about this because... The issues with officiating, the fact that they aren't full-time, and I know that if you have full-time officials, they're still going to make mistakes, but the appearance for everyone else, the gambling community at large, is we're doing everything we can. We're spending all of the money we can to get these calls right. These officials have no other distractions, no other obligations, no other professional pursuits except this. At least we're trying. And you start that conversation when the part-time officials make these boneheaded mistakes. Potentially, we don't know if they don't show it to us, but maybe that was the lesson they learned from the Mari Cooper thing. Hey, if we're ever going to kill a play and say a guy was out of bounds and he really wasn't, let's just move on to the next play. Let's get to the next bright, shiny object. Let's not have this conversation. Let's not give some of those jerks out there like Florio a chance to harp on us to have full-time officials because we really don't want to spend the money to have the full-time officials because we don't see the benefit of it incrementally. It's going to cost us a lot for maybe a little bit more when it comes to officiating accuracy. But the benefit is they can tell all of us we're trying everything we can to avoid mistakes like this. That human being who makes that call makes that inexplicable mistake has no other professional distractions, has nothing else that he or she has to think about other than knowing the rules, applying the rules, lather, rinse, repeat, 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 Peter. Uh, I'm not totally sold on on
2: uh, full time officials. However, however, I I'm not adamantly against them either. I just think it's going to be one of those things that, you know, I I I, honestly I don't know that a full time official what benefit being a full time official does in making that call correctly, you know, on the sidelines. But but whatever. whatever. I
1: agree. I agree, but it takes away the argument that if they were full time they wouldn't make that mistake. It takes away that very easy argument. Hey, these Uh, folks aren't full-time. I mean, Peter, how do you—I mean, really, I know it's not an easy job, but how do you look at a guy's feet and see him not step out of bounds and think he stepped out of bounds? And this gets back to what Roger Goodell said in 2012 about legalized gambling. He said normal incidents in the game are going to spark speculation that something fishy is happening or words to that effect. And that's the kind of thing that makes people say somebody's got money on the game. Somebody's got the commanders giving the points. Somebody's got the under on the DJ Moore touchdown prop, whatever it may be. When something like that happens, it makes it plausible, even if it's wrong, because I don't believe it yet, but it makes it plausible for people to think it. Mike, let me just get back to
2: one point about what I said that you obviously corrected me. The whistle blew and it probably would not have mattered. I think the one thing that I wish could happen in events like this, whether it be something that a team does uh, or or something that, uh, you know, the officiating crew, the officiating crew does, I mean, we need to have a focus on a play like this to basically say, look, if I make a mistake in what I do in my job, I admit the mistake because that's what you should do, you know. And to me, the officials need to start being more open on the mistakes that they make. And that's why I wish that there was the, you know, the and not just a 30 second timeout. I mean, I realize no coach is going to surrender a timeout, but I wanted to see, I kept saying, let's see this, let's see this. I wanted to see what everybody wanted to see, which is, did the guy step out of bounds or not? And look, here's the only reason why I am extremely suspicious that he stepped out of bounds. It's because, you know what DJ Moore's reputation is, Mike? An absolute, total flatliner. You know, I bet if you go back and watch tape, you're not going to see... Him acting like Pete Rose out there. Well, that's a guy from another era. But you're not going to see a guy who just get, jumps up and down and gets excited and all that. He's just not that kind of guy. And when I saw him do that, my first thought was, he's absolutely sure he didn't step out of bounds. And so, and that's why I wanted to see it because, hey, it, it, this is this is going a little bit far afield, but. When I was at Bears camp this year, okay, the one thing, I remember Darnell Moody told me this when we were talking after practice. He goes, this guy is like, he's been there before. He's done this. He said, he doesn't get too far up. He doesn't get too far down, you know, and words to that effect. And so I just thought when we saw that play, I said, this guy is sure. He This is not who DJ Moore is, to, to jump up and gesticulate like that. He's sure. Now, he might be wrong. He might be wrong. But that's why we should have seen that last night.
1: One last point before we pivot back to the commanders. For anyone wondering how full-time officials could help in a situation like that. And I've had people who are in high positions with teams who are proponents of full-time officiating. Explain to me how this would work. All the officials would live in a place like Dallas or Kansas City. They would all come back there. They would have multiple days of meetings every week. And one of the points that would be hammered constantly, we let these plays go. We can fix it if we don't blow the whistle. If you have any doubt about these highly tuned professional athletes who are skilled at tiptoeing along the boundary of the field because that is what they do – They know how to keep their bodies on the right side of the white line. If you have any doubt whatsoever, don't kill the play. If it turns out he stepped on the white, we can fix it either with the modified but ever growing sky judge or the full blown replay possibility. Because if he scores a touchdown, all plays are reviewable anyway. Nobody even has to throw a red flag. That's where full time officiating can make a difference. You have seminars, you have meetings, you have these folks face to face, not by email. Not by text message. They all come together every week. And they go over everything. And when a mistake like this happens, it's an opportunity to put them all in a room and say, we don't kill these plays. We let them play out. We can fix it afterward. What are we doing, people? We got to get this right. People are counting on us to get these right. That's how it would work. All right. Back to the team that couldn't get much of anything right. Although they did make it interesting. The final score, if that's all you see, you think, man, the Bears kicked the crap out of the commanders. No. No. It got interesting until Joey Sly misses a field goal that would have made it a seven-point game with enough time left to get the ball back and maybe force overtime. It looked like maybe the commanders could dig out of the hole they dug for themselves early in the game. Here's Ron Rivera after the game on what happened on what was an ugly night at FedEx Field.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Dear listener, please close your eyes for this movie theater meditation brought to you by Fantango. Breathe in. Smell the fresh popcorn. Now exhale. Ha! <sighs> Open your eyes and proceed to the best seats in the house you reserved on Fandango. Recline. Now, download the free Fandango app for movie times, tickets, and seats at your favorite theaters. Fandango, it's your ticket to the movies. For the world's greatest athletes... This Is the showdown we've been waiting for? There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. World Go for the United States. Unbelievable! And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. Well, slow start, first and foremost. We did not come out and slow them down. You know, it's something we got to take a long look at and kind of understand why more so than anything else. I mean, we're going to watch the tape. We'll look at what we need to do better. You know, it starts at the top. I mean, you know, we've got to be better, and that's on me. You know, and then we got to make sure we're putting in position to be successful.
1: Look, and I appreciate the head coach taking the responsibility. That's what the head coach has to do. But the bottom line is you got to come out of the gates ready to go. Both teams had tough losses on Sunday. This is one of the points Chris and I got into yesterday. Who's going to recover better from disappointing losses on Sunday on a short week? The psychology of it. The Bears blow the big lead. The Commander's in a position to win the game. They had to go overtime. Maybe that took a little something out of them, playing beyond 60 minutes when you got to turn around on a short week. But... The Bears were ready to go last night, Peter. The Commanders were not. And they dug a hole, like I said, that they couldn't ultimately get out of.
2: You know, the one thing about Washington that, uh, you know, I this is how I view the Commanders after five weeks. You know, we're now at the quarter pole of the NFL season. I know that's the wrong use of the word quarter pole. And horse racing enthusiasts are all throwing their horseshoes at the screen right now. But we're at the quarter point of the NFL season. And the one thing, I mean, there's a lot of things that are surprising because every year there are surprising things. But one of them is that Washington's offense is actually really good. And Washington's defense, which was supposed to carry this team, is putrid. And so you're right when you say that Jack Del Rio and Ron Rivera, the two defensive specialists, are in trouble because of that simple fact. But I think you know this is a franchise that has been looking for a long-term quarterback forever. And this is a franchise now you know there Joe Gibbs probably his biggest you know the biggest thing on his coaching resumes is he won Super Bowls with guys who uh, are not Hall of Fame quarterbacks and you know, This now, I'm not saying that Howell is going to be anything. I don't know what he's going to be. All I know is that the first month of this season, Sam Howell has been a revelation. And Sam Howell is more than any of these young second-year quarterbacks really looks like a 7th year quarterback. Nothing phases him. He gets sacked. He doesn't get ticked off. Uh, You know, he's he comes back fighting. Uh, I just I think that 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 Howell, as much as if you're a Commanders fan, you've got to be furious this morning with this team. Uh, I wouldn't be fear. I wouldn't be that furious because you just might have your long term quarterback.
1: My only critique of Sam Howell is this. He's got to know when to give up on a play because he's going to get himself hurt fighting for that extra yard or two when he decides to take off with the ball. That's my concern, and that applies across the board to every quarterback. you got to know when to hit the deck and call it a day because that extra effort to get that extra yard gives one of these 270-pound guys a chance to come in and give you the kind of hit that could maybe – Keep you off the field for a few weeks, if not longer. Okay, one of the things we saw last night, and Magic Johnson, one of the limited partners in the Josh Harris group, has a reputation for being comically obvious on Twitter. And he was comically obvious last night after the game. But, but, he was accurate, and he was pointed, and he pulled no punches when he said this. Tonight the Commanders played with no intensity or fire we didn't compete in the first half and got down 27 to 3 heading into halftime it was too big of a hole to climb out of and that is why we ended up losing 40 to 20 and again there is something that's that's humorous about a tweet that reflects everything we already know that's his trademark that's his thing he's perfected it whether he's trying to or not but the Commanders played with no intensity or fire. Terry McLaurin was asked about that after the game. He says it's a fair assessment. And, you know, Peter, somebody pointed this out to me, and I noticed it as it was happening, but the light didn't go off. Every time they showed Josh Harris in the suite, he was kind of yucking it up and schmoozing, even though they were getting their asses kicked. They showed Magic, Who is always smiling. He was not smiling. He was not happy. He was not pleased with what was going on on the football field. And... I give him credit for calling it out. We rarely see owners call it out like that right after the game. And I know he's not the majority owner, but he's the guy. He's magic. And he's got a piece of that team. He paid about 240 million for his piece of the team. So he's in it. And he's got a strong voice. He's on the pregame show. He's doing the media rounds. He says no intensity or fire. That's a message to that team. And it's not a good one, Peter.
2: Josh Harris is in his honeymoon period with the team. It's probably 80 percent finished now uh, I think everybody loved him uh, in the summer and and early in this season and because really ding dong Snyder's gone uh, so everybody loves whoever it's like the most George Young the old Giants GM always used to say if Phil Sims would have a bad game he goes hey you know The most popular guy in every city in the NFL is the backup quarterback. Everybody wants him to play when the offense is struggling. And right now, Josh Harris is popular because he's not Daniel Snyder. But, you know, this is something that this it, it, it was very easy to think that this franchise was going to turn around quickly now that Daniel Snyder was gone. But but Mike, let's let's be honest. Other than Daniel Snyder's role, obvious role in the drafting of Dwayne, the late Dwayne Haskins, okay, did Daniel Snyder in recent years pick the players? No. We'll go back two decades. He picked Deion Sanders and Bruce Smith in free agency, okay, along with Vinnie Serrato. But he 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 hasn't been picking these players. You got to look at the personnel staff the last few years right now to uh, to to try to find where to start, you know, laying the blame for what is going on in Washington. And look, it's all naive to say we got a new owner. We're fine. OK, owners really don't do very much. Mike, as you know, once the, I'm saying once the season starts, what does an owner do? He's Jerry Jones or Robert Kraft, and he's on TV three times a game on Fox or CBS. Hello, hello. Let's celebrate. Let's talk to Chris Christie in the box. Let's talk to Bon Jovi in the box. Yeah, That's it. And, 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 and look, I am on the record without any question. Robert Kraft deserves to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He made the most unpopular decision that an owner could make and people don't realize it now. But he had people telling him when he hired Bill Belichick, this is the biggest mistake you're ever gonna make. I can tell you that happened. And and so and he went against the grain. He said, I don't care. I know this guy, I'm hiring him, we're gonna win. And 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 but but be all that as it may, this owner, he's gonna be a good owner for this team. But I think it is vastly overrated. Once the ball gets kicked off after Labor Day, it's vastly overrated whether the owner has anything to do with whether you win or lose football games.
1: I agree with you completely. Now, Jerry Jones is the general manager of the Cowboys, so he has a little bit more to do than the average owner. But most owners should just be glorified fans who have really good seats and really good food and really good booze during the games. But once the season ends... That's when the owner starts to make the team into whatever the owner's vision of the team is going to be. Because, again, Josh Harris didn't say, I want to buy the Commanders because I really like that Jason Wright. And I really like Martin Mayhew. And I really like Ron Rivera. And I want to employ those people. No. No. He's going to come in and do what he did. And people have studied what he did with the basketball team, the 76ers, the New Jersey Devils. He gives it some time. He gives the people who are there a chance to show what they can or can't do, and then he makes decisions accordingly. So right now it's pointing to changes being made after the season, and we shouldn't be surprised when it happens because that's how it works. When an asset of that value, when that kind of money is put together, it gives the owner of the team the license to say who's going to be in charge of the most important aspects of the organization during those months where the owner is simply glorified fan one thing that quite possibly gave the bears a little boost last night news that broke just within a couple of hours before kickoff that stunned everyone hall of fame linebacker dick butkus and it feels like there should be a higher title than hall of famer for dick butkus he's one of the all-time greats he's arguably the best defensive player in nfl history he epitomized the middle linebacker position in only nine years in the National Football League he died at the age of 80 Peter it was before my time he was drafted the year I was born but he and Gale Sayers were the two players that I always kind of heard people talk in hushed reverent tones I had no experience I had no real-time knowledge All I saw was the NFL film's highlights, and it seems like every play that Dick Butkus made was some sort of a highlight where he is hitting someone the way they did back in the 60s and 70s.
2: Well, Mike, uh, I think what is most notable, and I've got 400 things to say, so let's parse them out a little bit one at a time. I think it's most notable that in the 1965 draft, The Chicago Bears had the third and fourth picks in the draft. And with the third pick, they picked Illinois linebacker Dick Butkus. With the fourth pick, they picked Kansas running back Gale Sayers. And as, uh, you know, I talked last night to Dan Deardorff, who played against Dick Butkus and who fiercely admired Dick Butkus. And Fran Tarkenton who played against Dick Butkus and more fiercely admired Dick Butkus. And the impression that they gave me was essentially that this guy was not only the best defensive player they ever saw, but he epitomized everything that was great about the sport of football. Now, look, in the first 50 years of football, you would say that some of the highlights that we saw of Dick Butkus absolutely creaming guys in the middle of the field and laying them out and them being unconscious. You know, we would all say that, you know, that's that's something that had to be fixed about the NFL, obviously, or else the NFL is not going to be around forever. I get it. However, in those days, it was legal. Dick Butkus played by the rules, and Dick Butkus made you fear playing the Chicago Bears, there's a great story that Fran Tarkenton told me, his center, Hall of Fame center Mick Tinglehoff, you know, during the week, as Tarkenton told me, he said, look, it was a different game in those days. I'm the one who basically installed our offense every week and decided what we were going to do on offense. And I remember early in the week when we were playing the Bears, Mick would come to me, and he's the one who would have to take on Butkus. And he would say things like, Hey, give me a break this week. We got Butkus. And <laughs> you know, just just make sure, just make sure that we have a lot of plays kind of that go away from Butkus. And and I think and and Mike, you know, what was so interesting about talking, especially to Fran Tarkenton, I'm telling you, Mike. Fran Targenton is, I think he's 83 years old. Last night when I talked to him, he was so emotional that I know he had been crying. And he said, you know, I, I've had so many people recently die in my life. And, and you know, Mick Tinglehoff died a couple of years ago. That was such a sad moment. Bud Grant died this year. Oh my God, I love Bud Grant. But for some reason, the death of Dick Butkus has hit me so hard i have been emotional for the last three hours and i can't stop because i feel like a part of football history has just died
1: and that's a great way for him to put it because that's the way i felt as well first of all we had no warning there wasn't an illness there wasn't any sense that the end was coming for dick butkus it just kind of dropped out of the blue that dick butkus had passed and In this day and age, 80 is far from being on the brink of checking out if you're healthy. You just keep going, and you keep going. And Dick Butkus was a guy that we just thought would keep going. But you said something that I probably knew at some point but had forgotten, the idea that Butkus and Sayers were drafted consecutively. It's unbelievable. Peter, again, I was – How did they not get to a Super Bowl? (laughs) How did (laughs) did they not compete? What was wrong with the Bears that they have (laughs) the ultimate chess piece on each side of the ball from 1965 through whenever Gale Sayers had his knee injuries? But still, you've got a window of three or four years where you've got the best of the best on offense and defense, and the team couldn't do anything with it. Hey, Mike, you know, that's one of the big
2: questions, honestly, of NFL history. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they never really had a quarterback. And honestly, Mike, Gale Sayers was never, uh, you know, I think his fourth year, he suffered a knee injury, and as great as he was, uh, and he was an incredible football player. You know, as Fran Tarkenton said to me last night, you know, there was Jim Brown and there was Gail Sayers, and that was really it. You know, they they were they were the two best backs. And, you know, in those days, and really, why did Butkus only play nine years? Knee injuries. And to me, they are two guys who, because medical science just simply wasn't advanced in 1968, 1969, you get a big knee injury, as Joe Namath you get a big knee injury and your career is going to be probably permanently derailed. And, but I, I, I think that, you know, I, I want to tell you one other quick story just because I don't, I I, I had this on my mind that I, I really wanted to tell that uh, I was putting together a book in 1990 for sports illustrated I spent a couple of uh, couple of weeks at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. They wanted me to do basically a pro football history book. Best players of all time, best games, best teams, everything. So I studied it really hard. And, and um, early on uh, in my sports writing life, I had made a statement or written a story about the great Dick Butkus and called him the best defensive player of all time. Well, then, that was like in the middle of Lawrence Taylor's career, and then later on, you know, uh, basically, I changed my mind. I said I thought that Lawrence Taylor was more impactful and everything. And I saw Butkus once. This was twenty years ago, and he knew He 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 knew what that that I had once called him the best, and then Lawrence Taylor the best. And he looked at me in a very disgusted way, and he basically said. You know, I don't remember his exact words, but he made it very clear. I know what you did, you know, and and he he thought clearly that in his day he was the best. And in his day, he was. But I think the 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 amazing thing was, Mike, you know what's different about football today? Honestly, there's a great clip right now of Budkus. And there's going to be a hundred of these making the rounds this weekend. Butkus, team captain, walking up to midfield before a game for the coin flip uh, with somebody else. Two captains on each team. Chicago versus Buffalo. Shakes hands with each guy. Said some, you know, forgettable pleasantries. And you know, and then you know, the ref says, "Okay, you'll receive. You'll kick off, gentlemen. Have a good game." And Butkus walks away and looks at the two bills guys and said a holes you know and and he, <laughs> and it's all it's all because he hated the opponent paul horning once said that he treated his opponent like that kid you really hated his guts on the playground you know every day he, and and all his opponents were like that nobody was special nobody was spared and One of the things that both Tarkenton and Deardorff said, independent of each other, I didn't have them on the phone at the same time, but independent of each other, they both said that one of the great things about their post-career is that they became friends with Dick Butkus. Because Butkus viewed, if you're in the fraternity, you're one of us. And man, we're going to be together forever. Whether it be in the Hall of Fame fraternity or whether it be in the ex-player fraternity. But he hated you when he played against you, and when it was over, he said, let's go have a beer. Not the same day. He still hated you after the game. But after the career, he didn't hate you anymore because you had been basically in the same sport uh, playing this, what in those days was much more of a gladiatorial sport.
1: And people who have discovered football in the last 20 or 30 years are stunned by that reality because today's players band together for a variety of reasons. They're in it together. Health and safety is a greater concern. There's movement every year of players from team to team. So that guy that you are potentially taking a cheap shot at now may be your teammate next year. He may be your teammate next week. Back in the 60s and 70s, You went to one team and you stayed with one team. There was no way out. There was no free agency. You were there until the team was done with you. And then the question was, would there be another team out there that would give you a chance? But so many of those teams were constructed through the draft and undrafted free agency, and those are the guys. So it was very easy to hate everyone because this is my team. These are the only guys I'm ever going to play with, and everybody else is my rival. Everybody else is my foe. Everybody else is the object of my hatred and it fit with the way they played the game. So I'm sure plenty of guys were like Dick, Butt cause he was just one of the best physically and one of the most intense. And he, he personified that feeling, but that's how it was back then. And that's how fans view it. Fans don't view their loyalties as transferable. So that's one of the things that I think a lot of the older school fans miss that the players don't hate each other like they used to. But I think there's also plenty of good, far more good than bad, given the way that the sport has changed, where there's a more collegial quality among players and they take care of each other. And you don't see guys stomping on people's fingers anymore or, you know, under the pile. Trying to twist and bend and poke and things that we used to hear about all the time when it happens now, it's a big deal because it's so rare used to happen all the time. I think
2: this, when you when you just start talking about the difference in eras, then this is this is a crazy story. I'm going to use this in my column Monday. So here's a here's a little preview of my Monday column. Uh, <clears throat> when Dan Dierdorf came into the NFL, his first his rookie year was 1971. So the Bears were kind of going by the way, Butkus was you know, nearing the end. He wasn't at the end, but I think it was in his seventh year then. So the first thing that Dan Deerdorf did, he played in the college all-star game that year. Look that one up, kids. And then his first day of training camp with the St. Louis Cardinals was actually in Lake Forest, Illinois, because the Chicago Cardinals used to be, uh, play, uh, the franchise used to play in Chicago, and they had been in St. Louis for 10 years, I think, at that point. But they were still training in Lake Forest, which is where the Bears were, obviously. So that year, they went and had a scrimmage in Indiana on his first day in training camp. And so Deerdorf didn't play, but he went with his team, his Chicago team, his St. Louis Cardinal teammates, to play the Chicago Bears. And on that in that uh, training camp scrimmage, Dick Butkus laid out a Cardinals running back and the guy was knocked unconscious on the field. And Deerdorf said that Butkus stood over him and it's reminiscent of the old uh, Chuck Bednarik standing over Frank Gifford play that has been immortalized with that great picture over time. But he stands over this running back, Butkus does, and he says, don't you ever come in my place again. And as Deardorff said to me, he said, you know, we're all watching this. We're saying, oh my God. And and as Deardorff said, Dick, you know, he can't hear you. He's unconscious. And, and so that was Dan Deardorff's introduction to professional football. The fact that in a scrimmage in the middle of the summer that meant nothing, that Dick Butkus was playing like it was Super Bowl 55.
1: Well, and that's definitely the kind of intensity that uh, that epitomized the sport back when Dick Butkus was playing. And uh, it was a stunner, as we said earlier, a shock, a guy who's one of the bedrock players in NFL history, Dick Butkus passing on Thursday at the age of 80. We're going to take a break. When we return, we'll have more PFT Live.